this is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, a music critic and journalist in New Orleans. I run my website, My Spilt Milk, and this is my podcast on Christmas music. Today I'm going to circle back to a conversation I started before Christmas with Holly Foster-Wells, the granddaughter of the singer Peggy Lee and the overseer of her legacy. We talked a little about how Lee celebrated Christmas a month or so ago. But there was a lot more to that conversation that I thought was really interesting on Lee and her Christmas music. First, though, I want to briefly detour into one of my fascinations, disco Christmas music. I don't have much use for lyric-based novelty songs like Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer or I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas, but genre-based novelties always get my attention. I have a few albums of Hawaiian Christmas music, gigabytes of reggae Christmas songs on a hard drive, and I love all kinds of electronic Christmas music, from Moog Analog Synth Christmas, to 8-bit Chiptune Christmas, to Techno and Dubstep Christmas. I consider Christmas music a kind of a novelty music on its own because it's made to capitalize on very specific market conditions. And that was certainly the case when disco exploded. I have a number of disco Christmas albums, and most are disappointing, even by my forgiving standards. They're usually too generic, and I find the album Christmas Disco by PK and the Sound Explosion from 1977 to even be substandard disco. The album that pays off is the easily available Christmas Jollies by the South Soul Orchestra from 1976. Admittedly, the South Soul Orchestra is a bit of a cheat because it also combines Philly soul, salsa, and funk with disco, but there's enough intelligence, imagination, and craft in the album to make it sing. From it, here's Little Drummer Boy. I played that to get to this. I have two Wayne Newton Christmas albums, and he has countless more. One, Merry Christmas from Wayne Newton, is a 1990 reissue of his 1976 Christmas Everywhere album with one song added, the twang-enhanced Cowboy Christmas that, if you love kitsch, will more than scratch that itch. Blue Snow at Christmas also leans toward country, Christmas in the USA manages to avoid anything specific to America and borders on aggressively forgettable, if such a thing is possible. But I come back to this album each year for its foray into disco, which makes sense now that I know the album's uh, true vintage. The song is Jingle Bell Hustle, and if you're like me, you'll hear it and picture Wayne with his black hair slicked back, wearing a shirt with puffy sleeves, while surrounded by dancers on a television Christmas special. Maybe the Dan Haggerty, BJ and the Bear truckin' Christmas spectacular. The forced joy only enhances the pleasure that comes from so many bad decisions. But I have to admit, I never forget about this song, and rehear it at least once every Christmas season, more than that if I can find more people to inflict it on. 
Since I believe the only bad Christmas music is Christmas music you forget about, Jingle Bell Hustle isn't bad. You can decide what it actually is. In December, I talked with Holly Foster-Wells about singer Peggy Lee. Foster-Wells is the president of Peggy Lee Associates and oversees the musical affairs associated with the singer's legacy. Lee passed away in 2002, and she's best known for her version of Fever from 1958, and a number of her Christmas songs have become part of the Christmas canon. Happy Holiday and the Christmas Spell tops among them. I'll put a link to the first part of this interview in the show notes, but here's part two, where we talk about her fame, the challenges she faced as a woman, and the reason Foster Wells has an estate to manage. We'll start with a few moments of fever for those of you who don't know it or haven't heard it in a while. Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night Sun lights up I know Andy Williams is known for Happy Holidays. Her version of Happy Holidays is the one I turn to. Oh, well, that makes me very happy. I cannot tell you. That song, when I hear it, I feel happy because I can actually, I can hear her smile on her face. I can tell her voice very well. And I've been in enough recording sessions with her to know almost how her face looks. And during that song, she's smiling the whole time. Happy holiday. And in fact, we just did a, Universal Music just did a fantastic animated video that came out yesterday to Happy Holiday. You'll have to watch it. Um, it's on Facebook. Um, it's a Facebook exclusive right now, but it will be on YouTube in um, a couple of weeks. But that song is just, when I hear it too, when I'm you know in the shopping mall or at Starbucks, and I'll just hear that. It's uh, pretty fantastic. Happy holiday. Happy holiday. While the merry bells keep ringing, may your every wish come true. Happy holiday. 
Is that her most successful sort of sales and airplay-wise, uh, her most successful Christmas song? Well, I'd say Happy Holiday and also Winter Wonderland is another one that, uh, have you heard that version, her version of Winter Wonderland? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, another big one that uh, at Christmas time. And I also want to mention a song that she wrote uh, for Lady and the Tramp, which is called, a Christmas song called Peace on Earth, Silent Night. It's it's like, it meshes her record or her version of Silent Night with Peace on Earth, which she wrote with Sonny Burke for Lady and the Tramp. And that is another, um, you know, really successful Christmas song. Oh, it's just beautiful. Yeah. I'll tell you, the reason I asked about which were the, was the most sort of, you know, the most successful or the best known is because I had an experience about six years ago. I got to interview Johnny Mathis. Oh. And, and I was talking to him about uh, Marshmallow World. And I have on different compilations that have come out in you know, the last 20 or so years, I've got about four, you know, I've got that album on, about, that song on about four compilations. And because I don't remember the song in its moment, I think I would have been about two or three when it when it was initially released. So, you know, that I don't know I don't have any sense of it. And we talked for about 15 minutes and he finally said, You keep asking me about this song. And I I don't know, you know, I don't remember that song being that big. You know, Sleigh Ride was much bigger. And 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 I went and checked, and of course he was right. And I, you know, that um, I'm not even sure "Marshmallow World" was ever released as a single, but it was a song that clearly found love with like music, uh, you know, with music directors and people who are putting compilations together. And, and so it kind of taught me to not necessarily trust the read I get from, you know, from the from the way music is pack, is put together now. And that, right. to, and that, to some extent, what we hear, what we hear now, is what appeals to the to contemporary ears, which doesn't necessarily mean that it was the biggest in its moment, or the one that has endured the most in the like twenty or thirty years before these compilations right. started coming out. So, 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 in your mind, Winter Wonderland or or uh, ha or Happy Holidays was bigger for her. Those two are our biggest songs at Christmas. And then, and then I would say in third place is the Christmas Waltz. Um, you know, gorgeous Sammy Kahn, Julie Stein. Um, that was arranged by Billy May. And that is a beautiful version. And we actually, the great thing about my grandmother's music now at holiday time is it's finding a new audience through synchronization uses on television commercials, TV shows, movies. Um, and that Christmas waltz was in a Tiffany commercial a few years ago. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. And then actually my grandmother's song from also from Christmas Carousel, the Christmas spell was featured on the walking dead, you know, Christmas theme. So yes, I love that. It's these songs are finding different ways to reach a new audience, including like this animated video of, Happy holiday that I told you. When you walk down the street in a street. 
she have uh, preferred um, arrangers and uh, you know, people to work with her on different sessions? She definitely had her favorite. She worked with the, the best of the best, like all the people that Frank Sinatra worked with and Ella Fitzgerald worked with. She was working with the same group. But she, you know, the first thing she would do is pick a song that resonated with her. And then the very next thing she would do is think, who do I want to arrange it? And she would know like, okay, this is going to be a Johnny Mandel. I want to give this one to Quincy Jones, Billy May, you know, she, uh, Victor Young and, um, oh my gosh, I can't even think of everybody, but she just worked with the best of the best. Yeah. Yeah. The Christmas waltz made me, reminded me of that because like, I know that, uh, Julie Stein wrote it you know, at, at Sinatra's request, he wanted a, a more, uh, a Christmas song for adults. And so it was written with that in mind, but I've always thought his version sounds like everybody's working. It sounds, it, it, it there's no fun in that version. And I loved that, uh, Peggy Lee's version because it sounds so easy. It actually glides like a waltz. And that there is a, and that she's not working to sell the fun of the song. She's not working to sell any of it. She's letting the song and her natural musicality, you know, move that thought along and move the, move the magic of the moment along. Well, she would love hearing you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you all the charts on the original album, Christmas Carousel, were done by Billy May. Oh, okay. So he did, and he also did the, that Christmas waltz, and he was by far one of her favorite arrangers. Also, another one I didn't mention, Nelson Riddle, of course, but Billy May did that album, and he did a beautiful job. Her, like that white Christmas. My grandmother's version, oh, it's dreamy.
find hard to tell when you hear music from that era is to some extent how much autonomy and how much control the the singer had and that clearly if you were you were a Sinatra you know you were driving the car but I know again when I talked to uh when I talked to Johnny Mathis that working with Don Costa was one experience and working with Percy Faith was a very different experience. And um, whichever one was first, and I can't remember, was far more sort of directing him. And it sounded very much like, although he was the name on the marquee, it was still to some degree he was, you know, it felt like he was treated as the singer in the, you know, in the arranger's band. Right. And, And so it sounds like what you're saying, though, is that, you know, Peggy Lee took a strong, a strong artistic hand and a strong hand in her music being the way it was. A hundred percent. So back in the day when she started in 1942 with Benny Goodman, she was very clearly an instrument in the band. And she talked about that period of her life as like boot camp. And she really learned how to, how to rehearse and, she learned so much from the guys in that band. Of course, she met my grandfather in that band too, and they ended up getting married and the rest is history. But that was when she was really just a part of the band. From there, as her solo career took off, she 100% took control. And she, um, she, you know, she had to fight for that, right? First of all, she was writing a lot of her own songs started her own publishing company. And this is in the late forties. She had the top selling album of the year with Manana. So she was really in a powerful position to take charge of her career by that time. But um, it was a, it was a boys club and she got called a lot of names and she was difficult and she got called worse than that. But um, by the time I was a part of her career, which was in the 70s, okay, that I really saw her um, performing. She was, she was as powerful, I believe, as Frank Sinatra. And you know, she picked her material. She picked her musicians. She picked her arrangers. She would go into a showroom to do a concert. She'd have the whole showroom rearranged. It didn't, she needed a vibe. She had wanted a feeling. We're going to have this. She had her lighting she was in charge of. Um, she took responsibility for how she sounded, how she looked, and everything about her show. Um, so I think that was pretty unusual in that time, especially for a woman. And to be one of the very first contemporary singer-songwriters, you know, I know Mel Torme wrote some songs and but it wasn't really being done at that time. Sure. Oh, I agree entirely. And I I think it's interesting that, you know, I mean it's a function of the time that we, you know, we are, you know, we are just not aware of necessarily the lives that people led and like how their careers worked out. Their careers weren't covered in the same way that music musical careers were covered you know, years later, and especially, right. I mean, there, especially, you know, there was no, there was no music press to cover right. their life, their careers 
in the same way that a Rolling Stone and magazines after that covered rock and roll music careers. And right. so like a story like hers just wasn't told because it was either, because if it was told, it was simply told as sort of an extension of Hollywood press or show business press. And it was probably far more oriented toward tabloid than it was oriented towards how did her career work? How did her music become the way it is? Right. There's so many interesting stories with almost every song that she did. There's a story behind it. And I will tell you, I'm still uncovering stories and discovering things. It's every single day. But two songs that really are well known, like Fever, for example, that day that she went into the recording studio for Fever, Jack Marshall was the conductor um, that was there that day. And just little by little, she started taking out instruments. You know, he had a whole big band there and she's like, no, 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 no. And then it ends up being finger snaps, bass and drums and her voice. And by the way, that arrangement ended up winning a Grammy Award. It was at the very first Grammy Awards. And of course, that Grammy went to Jack Marshall because he was the conductor there that day. Right. But she had a vision for this song, which was to pare it down to just the essentials. And um, and another example would be, is that all there is? Which she won a Grammy Award for that song. Um, Capitol Records absolutely didn't want to record it. It was 1969, which is when rock and roll was the rage. And this was a a song that they said was too long, too strange, and was mostly talking. Right. And they said no. And she said, well, let me just do a demo. And she did a demo. And and guess who that arranger was? Randy Newman. Oh, wow. Young, Randy Newman did the arranger on that Lieber and Stoller um, uh, song. And then Capitol heard that demo and said, no, sorry, but no. And then they had asked her, do you, would you be on this TV show to promote this other artist that we're trying to, you know, establish? And she said, well, I'll go on that show only if you let me sing, is that all there is? And you release a limited quantity of the uh, recording, then I'll do it. And the rest is history. She went on the show, that song took off. And at the age of 50, she won her very first Grammy after 12 nominations. Wow. these are just examples of ways that she just is, knew what was right for her and had to push and fight for that. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting you know, talking to you about, about, about her and, and like having to think about her career. Cause I have to say as somebody who, who became conscious of her in the seventies, most of my, most of my initial sort of uh, exposure to Peggy Lee would be on talk shows, on specials on television. And and to some extent, she was just sort of, in my mind, a part of show business. Because at that time, there were, I mean, there were a lot of people on television, a lot of either were there talk show hosts or singers who started off singing with big bands. But that part of their history was so far in the background that all you knew them for was, or, or all I knew them for was what they were doing then. And, right. and in retrospect, I've thought about, tried to think about what it, that time would have been like for them, knowing that they were, you know, knowing that someone like Peggy Lee had made her career and clearly focused her career on 
being a singer and that was her art and that was her the thing that made her happiest but that sort of drifting into the sort of realm of being just sort of a miscellaneous celebrity right and, and i wonder if you have any perspective on on how hard or you know on, on how that wore on her or how she handled that well it did wear on her i can tell you that i'm watching of course we talked about just a minute ago rock and roll coming in so that was a big change. She wasn't a rock singer. So she, a lot of her contemporaries just couldn't adapt to that. And she worked on adapting to that. And she had a quote that said, uh, if you can't beat the Beatles, join the Beatles, for example. Right. And and she recorded she, some Beatles covers. And then eventually she actually met um, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, he wrote a song for her and produced one of her tracks for her um, her album, Let's Love. But she worked hard to adapt to changing times as she saw this music that she loved becoming less relevant. Um, and so she started, you know, she reached out to younger songwriters and started covering, you know, at the time, like David Gates and um, she sang a Judy Collins song. I just saw a beautiful article that Judy Collins talked about this month in Opera Times talking about Peggy Lee and the effect that she had on, on Judy Collins's career. So she, she reached out to younger songwriters. Um, and then I will say too, aging in front of the spotlight, weight, health problems. Um, when you have been known as a very sensual, sexual uh, singer, then you're getting older and singing fever and I'm a woman and big spender, it, it was not easy for her to, to change. And, uh, but I always say to my kids, like she was the Madonna of her time where Madonna has really changed and stayed, remain relevant. And my grandmother figured out her own way of, of staying relevant. Yeah, no, that's great. I, and I, I it's something I've come to appreciate over time. And, and I think the things you point out about, you know, as, as a woman aging and aging in public that, mm-hmm. um, you know, like say not knowing the backstory, like I go back, you know, seeing pictures of her, you know, now is amazing because of, of course, when I first was aware of her, she was wearing like the, like the snowplow eyelashes and, right. uh, you know, and they were, they were a bold statement. And, um, right. but I also realized it was, you know, she was, you know, that she had always been a sensual figure and she was, that was, you know, obviously how she saw herself and the way she was aware her audience saw her. And she was clearly working to, st- working to, to stay in that lane. Right. You know, it's interesting seeing, being in the audience as, as a granddaughter. So I would be backstage with her, help her get ready. And that could be a very tense time, by the way, because she actually was um, an introvert. And I think it took a lot of energy for her to go out there and put on this show and be vulnerable and um, on stage. And so I would have all this tension backstage and then I'd run around and sit in the audience and watch the show and then just be captivated and spellbound like everybody like oh well this is why we just went through that whole exercise backstage because look at this beautiful 
moment she's creating for people. And I had seen her in different shows almost get campy or make fun of certain songs that she'd sing like Fever, just because I think she was uncomfortable at a certain age doing certain things. But it didn't matter to that audience. They still saw her as Peggy Lee from the 60s and they wanted her to take them back to that time. And um, she needed, and then she would adjust. She would, you know, say, okay, I need to be serious about this, you know? Right. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. It's one of the things I often talk to, you know, talk to musicians about, because it's always such an interesting question, right? That you have this song that has endured and that has become such a part of people's lives and you, that means that you have to play it nightly. And where people right. will listen to it a few times a year and love it, you have to play it every night. And so, uh, you know, how do you deal with that? And also, how do you de- what do you do with the knowledge that what people most want from you is your 10, 15, 20-year-old self, you know, 20 years back? And, like, and I, obviously that's got to be such a hard, a hard thing to work through. And... Uh, and obviously, some people work through it with more style than others. Right. So. I think, you know, with my grandmother, I've thought about her, obviously, a lot with what I what I do with her music. And for her, this had so much to do with connection. Like, she just liked connecting with people through music. And so it really would depend on how the audience was. She, you, If there was a really particularly engaged and loving audience the magic that would happen in the room was palpable um but i've also been in some audiences where it didn't feel that way and the vibe was off and then my grandmother would get thrown off too because it was so much about the connection so and yeah we talk about connection and and i know marriage didn't work out well for your mom well for your grandmother and i wonder if that might have been one of the reasons why she focused so much attention Christmas time, focused attention towards kids, towards you and towards, uh, and towards her daughter. And, uh, if, you know, if, because that's where family was for her, that's where, that's where family was successful for her. Have you thought at all yes, about that? I know I have, I have thought about that. Well, one of the things about her is that she was so romantic and she was, absolutely like in love with love and it's interesting that she one of the things she wanted more than even to be a singer was to be happily married and then that dream eluded her she was married four different times and and she certainly had some wonderful romantic relationships but nothing that was that long-term love of your life my grandfather was the love of her life she says but um, that's didn't last, unfortunately. So yes. Yeah, so her family, her daughter, her grandchildren, and also her, her friends, she had a group of friends and even people that worked for her and musicians that became her family. And, um, they were just essential to her. Um, and Christmas time was the time when she would bring these people together and the most. I mean, she had Sunday dinners throughout the year and she, she had parties all the time. Any holiday, she had a party, honestly, but Christmas and New Year's Eve 
were the two big ones. Right. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. Gone away is the bluebird. Here to stay is a new bird. He's singing a song as we go along. Walking in a winter wonderland. In the meadow, we can build a snowman. Thanks to Holly Foster Wells for the time and the talk. Last year, Lee would have been 100, and there were a number of Lee-related reissues put on the sale for the occasion. Ultimate Christmas is a vinyl two-disc set that collects Christmas music from across her career, including many of the songs she wrote and everything that appeared in today's episode, and it was put on the market last season, in case you still want to get back and get it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can find me at 12songsofchristmas.com, you can write me at alex at myspiltmilk.com, or on Facebook at 12 Songs of Christmas. If you haven't subscribed yet to 12 Songs, I hope you'll do so wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple person, I'd appreciate a five-star review. Thanks, as always, to AF The Naysayer for our theme music. Thanks to you for listening. And I'll finish with one more from Wayne Newton. Earlier on, I mentioned Cowboy's Christmas. You can now decide if it's your kind of nutty. Talk to you next week. On a cold December eve out on the range A bone-chilled cowboy's counting up his blessings And life alone that if he could he wouldn't change He's thankful for his lot and all his boyhood lessons As he lopes along in silent meditation A star shines in the east to light his way He's driving our horse in quiet celebration Two together riding into Christmas Day And a cowboy's Christmas is a time to roam To reach out and touch the heart of heaven A hundred empty miles away from home But so grateful for all